Support for On Something comes from the Rodman Law Group, a Denver-based law firm with a global reach. The Rodman Law Group specializes in cannabis, hemp, business, and securities law. Learn more at therodmanlawgroup.com. Support for On Something comes from Way to Grow, providing growers and gardeners with knowledge and tools for hydroponic and organic urban gardening since 2003. With locations in Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver, and Colorado Springs, learn more at waytogrow.net. Hey there, quick warning. This episode has lots of strong language and discussion of police violence. From Colorado Public Radio and PRX, this is On Something. Everyone knew the police will beat your ass and kill you, possibly. Mm. Especially if you're African-American. Like, you know that that is going to happen. So, of course, you're always going to be harassed, guns pulled on you, you know, foot... In your back on the ground, you know, searched, all that shit. You know, if you had weed, if you had a joint, they're going to take you to jail. That's just how it was. Is that what happened to you? Well, no, not for a joint. I got taken to jail for ounces. Yeah. I'll never forget the day I was driving on um, university. And of course, I wasn't doing anything wrong. Of course, it was racial profiling. I didn't even know that word. But I'm like this young brother, and they're like, let's pull this guy over. I know he's doing something wrong, you know pull you over. Do you have any drugs? Do you have any guns? You know, how many times am I asked that question? And um, yeah, got arrested for weed. Xavier DeFrepolez has had more run-ins with Oakland police than he can even count. He started selling weed in the Bay Area when he was just 12 years old. He's a black man in his 50s now. And he says back then and all through the years, coming face to face with a cop was a common experience whether he was selling weed or not. Constantly, 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 you know, as a kid being, as we call, hemmed up. You're going to get hemmed up by 5-0 regularly. You just knew. And I said, I I think back then you knew, so you kind of developed tools to deal with them. This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. On this episode, the dangerous intersection between marijuana, racism, and the police. George Floyd was killed by police earlier this year. And then video of his death went viral. And ever since, the way we talk about police and policing has been rapidly evolving. And the conversation continues even while there are more deaths and more viral videos. Although for some, it might feel like there's a big old elephant in the room. The war on drugs, which has shaped American policing on such a fundamental level. Today, two stories from two people on two opposite coasts about coping with the cops on every corner. I forgot to ask you at the get-go how you want us to refer to you throughout the episode. Uh, There's only one fantastic Negrito in the world, and you're talking to him right now. Do you want us to use your first and last name at all in the episode or not? 
No, I'm just Fantastic Negrito. Okay, cool. Unless you're coming over for coffee, then I'm the other guy. All right, from here on out, he is Fantastic Negrito. He's a Grammy award-winning blues artist and winner of the NPR Tiny Desk Contest. Lost in a crowd, you feel your thoughts out loud, lost in the wilderness. Pre-Fantastic Negrito, his music sounded a lot different. And at one time, a long time ago, he grew weed and sold it in the Bay Area. And that's why we wanted to talk to him. He has seen a lot over the years. When I started dealing, I was in junior high. You know, it's, was, you know what I mean? That was, it was just part of the, the fabric of the culture of growing up in the neighborhoods in the Bay Area. Can you tell me about that, like how you got started? Well, I was, I, you know, I was always a friend of marijuana. I was always <laughs> a friend even way back when people weren't so friendly about marijuana. I always saw it as a means to uh, move ahead. Mm-hmm. And um, something really got into my head as I would always take these trips down south. He'd head down to rural Virginia to visit family. Sometimes he would ask his grandmother about her life. And one of the questions that I asked my grandmother was, Grandmother, what did you do during, you know, Jim Crow and segregation? You know, I think Grandma was born in, like, 1911. And I was really shocked at the answer that she gave me. And um, it stayed with me for the rest of my life until this day and helped shape all of my philosophy. And she said, you know what, honey? We didn't really have a problem with white folks. So then right then I kind of perked up, like, huh? She said, no, because we had our own land, and we all got together, and what she explained is a collective. She didn't use that word. We had our own chickens, our own livestock, and we had our own property to grow what we needed. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow. Revolution went off in my head. You don't need to ask people for anything. In the 80s, the artist someday to be known as Fantastic Negrito moved to Oakland with his parents and 14 siblings. His father was an Orthodox Somali Muslim and ran a strict household. And shortly after that move, when he was 12, he would leave that strict household to go live on the streets. His first instinct was to go to his aunt. And he likes to think that even back then, she too was helping to shape this philosophy he now has. Yeah, my auntie, who was big-time Rasta, she, you know, that's how she supported her nine kids, on Ninth Street, in Berkeley, on the waterfront. Everybody knew where to get weed. Mm. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Again, independence. She was living on, you know, her terms. And I, I, I learned watching her, you know, with her nine kids eating her tofu, selling weed to everybody in Berkeley, you know, back in the 80s. And so I said, you know, front me an, an ounce, auntie, and immediately went into business. And oh, wow. I smoked a lot of it back then, too. But uh, yeah, it, it, it was just, it's always been a positive force in my life from the time that I first touched it when I was 12 years old. <laughs> he found other ways to earn his independence. He was a street performer, and at one point he ran an illegal nightclub. But about 10 or 15 years ago, he came back to marijuana. Times were tough for his community. 
If you wanted a case study for gentrification and its impact, look no further than Oakland in the early 2000s. Rent had climbed so high that over time, it displaced about half of Oakland's Black population. Fantastic Negrito and his friends formed a collective, growing organic marijuana and selling it. Now, strictly speaking, even though medical marijuana was legal in California, what they were doing was not. I was supporting my family with marijuana. Now I was employing people in my community. I mean, I didn't know really what I was doing back then, but that's what was happening. You know, people were having jobs, yeah. um, they are working on the farm. It also meant that he and other artists in his community could continue making art and still pay the bills. So I'd grow marijuana, and every, you know, every quarter or so when we, you know, would have some money from, from growing and selling to dispensaries, I would send money to them and tell them, man, just keep being a writer. Hmm. Keep being a creative person. The world needs creative people. It's just amazing the economic impact that it had on my small community it was massive. Of course, one man's economic empowerment is another man's crime. And while marijuana could keep his friends fed and his kids clothed, it could also invite attention from the cops. Something that I'm like kind of interested in getting at, and you kind of mentioned it, is like sort of how often marijuana or just like the suspicion that someone has marijuana on them drives an interaction between a black person and the police. Are you kidding me? I wrote a song that's called The Suit That Won't Come Off. Now let that sink in for a minute. The suit that won't come off. Listen, I know what I'm up against. My father was born in 1905. He had me when he was 63. So from a kid, my dad was giving me the game on, listen, you're a little black kid. There are police out there. And what he said, they will blow your brains out. And I was like, wow, I was about six. So this is what you got to do when you, when you meet them. And you're going to meet them frequently. And I guess when I was about 12 is when it started. And it didn't stop for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I think now that I'm older, I don't really get that anymore. But um, And I've got a really funny haircut. <laughs> and um, that helps, actually. It's funny, but that actually helps. I'm going to the community center with my friends to go to a party and my brother wanted to go get potato chips and I didn't want to go to the local bodega with him. So I go to the party to hang out with my friend and my brother hasn't come back in 30 minutes. Cassandra Frederic grew up on the opposite coast in New York in the 90s, the era of broken windows policing. And then... I come out of the party and I'm freaking out because this is before cell phones. Yeah. And my brother comes down the block, tears streaming down his face because the cops stopped him because a woman was robbed and they, he fit the description and the woman passed by in a cab with the police officers and shook her head because she said that wasn't him. But we know how faulty eyewitnesses are. What if she thought it was him? I would have had to go back to my mom and tell her, I didn't want to go to the store with my brother because I was hanging out with my friend. That is the era that I grew up in. 
Broken Windows Policing was one of the signature programs of former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. To Giuliani, it meant policing the small stuff just as hard as the big stuff in the hopes that arresting more people for the small stuff would prevent the big stuff from happening. But to black New Yorkers growing up during this time, it meant far more interactions with the cops. Like, to be black in New York City growing up under Giuliani, being young, that shapes the way that you see policing and your understanding of it. I remember police killings. That is a mark of a kid growing up in the 90s and in New York City. You remember, you know, the first police killing that I remember is Anthony Bias. It was December 22nd of 1994 when the 29-year-old was playing football with his brothers outside their home and the former Bronx officer put him in a chokehold and he later died. I remember Amadou Diallo who was shot at 41 times and hit 19. On the street where Amadou Diallo was killed, small crowds gathered throughout the day to lay flowers and pray. The young African immigrant died when four plainclothes cops shot him 19 times. I remember Abner Louima, who was sodomized. In a city not easily shocked, it was a stunning charge, an incident of incredible brutality. I remember Sean Bell. I remember Patrick Dorsman. I remember Deborah Daner. I, I remember stories of Eleanor Bumpers. Like, I remember stories. That is the mark of my childhood growing up in New York City. That I remember police killings as markers in my development. When she was younger, Cassandra got into labor organizing, which later led to her decision to become a social worker. She wanted to focus on working with people who were moving through the court system. Criminal justice, workers' rights, these were the kinds of issues that she was passionate about. And during social work school, she had lined up the perfect internship doing this exact kind of work in the courts. Except it fell through, which left her with two choices. I was offered to either do anti-racism trainings or work at Drug Policy Alliance. So (laughs) I said, I'll work at Drug Policy Alliance. The Drug Policy Alliance, based in New York, was a nonprofit that aimed to end the drug war, something that she didn't know as much about at the time. I had no idea what Drug Policy Alliance was. I was like, oh, drugs. They're bad. (laughs) (laughs) Then I get there and I'm like, oh, what? What is this? (laughs) There are people that work on this? And, you know, the more I read, the more I was challenged. I was just like, oh, wow, this is different. She learned that drug policy touched all of the other policy issues that she cared about, especially criminal justice. She learned about the history of the war on drugs. Something she argues was always about policing communities of color, right off the bat. I know this episode is about marijuana, but I think it's important for us to recognize that when we're talking about opium in the 1800s in California, we can talk about policing in the drug war, and it's starting with Asian folks. Because they came and built the railroads, and as we tend to do in this country, when people are done giving labor and being exploited for their labor, we have to figure out a way to criminalize them. Yeah, that's like the first drug law I can think of. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. The first drug laws in the U.S. were the opium law, and it was about policing Asian folks in California. 
And then there's the 1937 law that made marijuana federally illegal. Cassandra argues that targeted black people and Mexicans because it came during a time when the government adopted all kinds of policies to restrict these groups. And then, almost 30 years later, there's the declaration of the War on Drugs by President Richard Nixon. Shortly after that, the Rockefeller Laws, severe, mandatory minimum sentences that fell hard on black and brown people, first in New York and then across the country. These policies led to ballooning prison populations. And then came decriminalization later on in the 70s, meant to be a solution to laws that were sending too many people to jail. But Cassandra says it was only aimed at keeping certain people out of the criminal justice system. She says New York didn't decriminalize marijuana until a group of white mothers put pressure on the DA to keep their kids out of jail for pot possession. That, for me, shows how drug policy is a masterclass in white supremacy policymaking. Cassandra learned all of this history because she took that internship with the Drug Policy Alliance. And then after it was over, she stuck around. For a decade, actually. Advocating for drug policy reform came to be her life's work. And this month... I am also the incoming executive director of Drug Policy Alliance. It's about not separating cannabis and drug policy from policing. You know, the drug war is essentially about policing. It's about policing what you can put in your own body. It's about policing what you use. It's about policing what markets you're in. We're not going to end racially biased enforcement by legalizing cannabis. We're not. Because, as I said in the beginning, it's not about the drug. (laughs) It's about creating the infrastructure and scaffolding to justify the selective enforcement of certain groups of people. We need a fundamental conversation about how we want to engage with society. That means a fundamental conversation about policing. Which there seems to be a lot more appetite for now. Correct. Yeah, Yeah, we're in a moment of people questioning the institution of policing. People who work and believe in drug policy reform should not see this as something that is separate from them. After the break, how all of this figures into our current debates over policing and legalization. Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make On Something possible. Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling and I am so grateful. The reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to onsomething.org and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much.
All right, so we've talked a lot about how policing is very hard to separate from drugs, which are very hard to separate from race. And that's why so many people support legalization, right? If you just take the drugs out of the picture, that should fix the problem, right? Of course not. Marijuana is still a gateway drug for interacting with cops, especially if you're a person of color. In fact, in most states where weed is legal now, black people are still more likely to be arrested for pot-related offenses. The suspicion that you're selling it, using it, or even just the smell of it can be justifiable cause for a cop to get into your business one way or another. And it can also be used to try to justify whatever happens next. Man, you gotta like, first keep your car. I mean, Why do you think that a lot of young black kids are getting killed by the police? This piece, Fantastic Negritos, What Do You Do?, revisits the advice he inherited from his father about complying with the cops. It's advice that he passes down to his kids now, advice he still lives by today. And it's advice that upsets some people. If you're getting stopped on some back alley somewhere, you better do whatever he tells you to do, no matter if he's wrong as hell. I don't know what happened where there become this detachment where people felt like they, they had some rights all of a sudden. I mean, it sounds terrible. It must sound terrible to white people that I walked around thinking, I don't have no rights with the police. But it's true. Not on the streets when they got a, a gun. And, there's, and, and, it's, and, and it's their word against my word. I'm like, there ain't no f- fucking rights. I have the right to shut the fuck up and try to live through this. And if I can live, that's a victory for my community, for my mother, for my future children. I lived through that shit. I want to know something. I actually had a question down here about Philando Castile. You have a license insurance? Philando Castile was pulled over by a St. Paul, Minnesota cop on July 6th, 2016. The cop said Castile's taillight was out. And after handing over his paperwork, Castile notified the officer that he had a gun on him a gun that he had a legal permit to carry. Sir, I have to tell you, I do have a okay. firearm okay. on me. Don't reach for it, then. Don't pull it out. I mean, I'm curious. This is a man who was shot by a police officer in his car, and he was complying. Murder. No, that was just straight murder. Yeah, I mean, that was... I don't know what that dude could have done different when I seen that. That's one that I go, yep, I don't... That was just... That police officer was so fucking scared. And that's what I was going to add. Since I was 12, the shock, the shock that I remember feeling when I looked at a big police officer and I'm a little guy and I was like, wow, this guy's scared of me. And I remember it kind of blowing my mind. And I, when you watch, you know, um, Philandro, rest in peace, I, I just saw that cop was so fucking terrified of that suit that doesn't come off. And I don't know, in that situation, what I, I, I would have done. I, I, don't, I mean, let me think, what would I have done? I would have maybe just said uh, um, nothing. I wouldn't have said I had a gun on me. I don't know what I would have done. I would have said, um, whatever you need me to, to do, officer, please don't shoot, hear my hands, but the, I don't know. You know, I know I've been stopped and guns pulled on me. I can't tell you 
how many times? Because you know why? I fit the description. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, but I always knew. Like, I just, I just treated them like they were the authority. They have a big fucking ego. Let them live. Their life sucks. My life doesn't. You know, I'm going to go on and do my music and do all the things that I wanted to do in my life. So I never, you know, I always make them feel um, like they're the king. And I'm like, which is funny to me. I mean, you know, you're the coward. You got the gun. But yeah, you're the king, buddy. You got all the moves. That's right. I don't have any fucking rights. You're right. Fine. What is it that creates that mentality in policing? That that is like a justifiable cause? I don't think it's fear. Or I don't think it's only fear. I think it's the desire for obedience. Hmm. I think it's about having power over. And when people don't feel like they have power over, ego plays a large part. Right. Because as you think about Philando Castillo, the death I will always come back to is Trayvon Martin. Yeah. Because George Zimmerman used marijuana when they were like, oh, his eyes looked crazed, and then they That's did the right. blood test. Breaking news in the Trayvon Martin shooting case tonight. Evidence just released shows Martin had marijuana in his system the night he was fatally shot by George Zimmerman. They will invoke drugs as a justification, right? Yeah. Because with Philando, we saw that he complied the whole time. Mm -hmm. But the man was still scared and still got off because he was able to use marijuana. The officer's lawyers argued in court that Philando was stoned when the shooting took place. And the jury acquitted the officer on all charges. Philando's mother, Valerie, stormed out of the courthouse. We're going back down to 1969. Damn! What is it going to take? I'm mad as hell right now. Yes, I am. My firstborn one son died here in Minnesota. Under the circumstances, just because he was a police officer, that makes it okay. Oh, now they got free reign. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. This summer's Black Lives Matter protests have been the largest protests in American history. It feels like a tipping point. And real reform seems possible, maybe even inevitable. But Fantastic Negrito still feels kind of like he's been here before. As a younger man, he joined Black Lives Matter protests after Oakland police killed a man named Oscar Grant in 2009. But in his eyes, the momentum faded, as it always does, and the violence continued. As he saw it, people stopped paying attention. We kind of live in the age of the internet and slogans and phrases. And I'm very happy that young people have been mobilized and this is a great moment. But, you know, I just don't buy it. I'm like, um, let's see if we can get through this. Let's wait for the backlash. Let's wait for all the fatigue. And let's see when people really want to get real, then we can get real. And I think that you got to do the hard work. Is anything different out there? We'll see. Mm. There's a lot of posturing. There's a lot of pandering. There's a lot of um, words. Well, Grandma almost always told me, those are words. 
అలాగే యాక్షన్ Speaking of action, all the way on the other coast, lawmakers may give marijuana legalization in New York another look. Why? Well, because now it's part of a bigger proposal on criminal justice reform. Last year, the debate was simply about legalizing. This year, legalizing is finally a part of a broader debate about policing. For Cassandra, that shift is overdue. More than two-thirds of Americans think weed should be legal now. And she feels like, finally, the argument is no longer just about being able to smoke weed. It's about disentangling police, race, and drugs. I think that's how it always should have been. Because we're legalizing cannabis, not only because of cannabis, but because of the devastation it's wrought on communities. This is about marijuana and it's completely not about marijuana. On Something is a Labor of Love, reported and written by me, Anne-Marie Awad. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. This show is produced by Rebecca Romberg. Curtis Fox and Dennis Funk edited this episode. Music by Brad Turner and Daniel Mesher. Our executive producers are Kevin Dale and Brad Turner. On Something is made possible by lots of talented people like Rachel Estabrook, Dennis Funk, Francie Swidler, Kim Wynn, Dave Burdick, Allison Borden, Matt Herz, Kendall Smith, and Jody Gersh. Our illustrator is Iris Gottlieb. See more of their art on Instagram at Iris Gottlieb. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. Support for On Something comes from the Rodman Law Group, a Denver-based law firm with a global reach. The Rodman Law Group specializes in cannabis, hemp, business, and securities law. Learn more at therodmanlawgroup.com. Support for On Something comes from Way to Grow, providing growers and gardeners with knowledge and tools for hydroponic and organic urban gardening since 2003. With locations in Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver, and Colorado Springs, learn more at waytogrow.net.